lifetime, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. Now, here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain. So good to be on with you on this Thursday, November the 10th. 2022 on the memorial of St. Leo the Great, Pope and Doctor of the Church. Praise be to God. Hey, guess what? She loved chocolate. She was impatient and even got mad at times. And still, uh, what an incredible witness to the faith. We're talking about uh, Mother... Review of St. Teresa of Calcutta coming up at 35 past the hour. Join us if you can. But at 15 past the hour, I kind of want to say the the uh, quiet part out loud today. Okay. Uh, guess what? Gen Z voted big this week. 79% of 18 to 29-year-olds were concerned about what? LGBTQ and abortion rights. And they voted ouge, as they say. We're going to cover that. Because whoever owns the culture in the end owns politics, according to George Newmeyer. We're going to talk about that at, at uh, 15 past the hour. Hector Molina is going to be on the show at the top of the next hour to cover us for the Sunday Gospel. Are you ready? Have you read it already? Well, you ought to, and Hector will give you the inside scoop in the next hour. Join us if you can. Lots of stories in the news, of course. As of right now, in the House races, Democrats hold 191 seats. To the Republicans, 210, and there needs to be 218 for a a majority. And in the Senate races, the Democrats have 48 seats to the Republicans, 40, uh, 51 for the majority there. Hey, Amazon makes history, losing $1 trillion. Uh, Wow, yikes, a mid-tech stock route. Latin American countries are releasing thousands of criminals from overcrowded prisons. I'm sure none of them will make their way to the border. Mm -mm, Nothing to see here. On Tuesday at annual climate change conference held by the United Nations, John Kerry said the World Economic Forum's First Movers Coalition Climate Initiative will be rolled out kind of like the COVID vaccines, whether you want them or not. Good morning to you, Rudy Carlos. Good morning. And I, for one, welcome Mm -hmm. our green overlords. Do you? I do. Wow. Uh, I'm going to stop driving my car. Okay. It's 20 years old. It's, yeah. it's very inefficient. It's a uh-huh. four-cylinder. Four yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and uh, what else am I going to do? Uh, I'm only going to shower once a week. <sighs> conserve water. Yeah, so, buddy. Hold on. Uh, what else? You're what saying else? Uh, you shower more than once a week now? <laughs> I didn't know. This is amazing. I'm learning something new. What else can we do? Hey, by the way, I watched a video yesterday comparing uh, electric cars to gas cars. This oh, came out of uh, this came out of England, and it was cheaper to operate the gas cars. And they use like they use like the same make and model. Just one was electric version, and one was a gas version. And they did two different cars: the Peugeot and a BMW. Uh, so Peugeot to Peugeot, BM, Beamer to Beamer, and it was cheaper to run the gas car, hmm. and it took a lot less time to fill up too. So, well, you know what they say, Joe. What do they say? Green is the new red. Is that, is that green what is the new red? That's a that's no. a saying. As in, we're yeah. going to be in the red? No, as in uh, <laughs> exactly. the green environmental movement is the new communist movement. Ah, yeah. oh, green oh. is the new red. I see where you're going with that. Oh. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. Maybe we should uh, get somebody on to talk about that. It'd be kind of interesting. Lots to discuss today, though, on the program. Uh, I, I did reach out to uh, George Newmeyer. I said, "Hey, man, if you're out, if you're awake at this time of day, 
and you're a journalist, so I don't have hope that you are. Uh, but if you are, come on the show. I'd love to chat with you because he's got some good articles at the American Spectator that uh, I, I just think it's the quiet part that needs to be said out loud. And so I'm looking forward to having that conversation coming up in just a few moments. And of course, Jim Tui's going to be on. He was the president of two small Catholic colleges, but he spent 12 years working as an attorney for Mother Teresa and her sisters. And uh, we're going to get his uh, very interesting insider commentary on Mother Teresa. All that on the show today. Well, let's uh, let's pray. Let's get into it. Let's get started. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, Despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And now, your headline news with Rudy Carlos. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Catholic Drive Time. Today is Thursday, November 10th, and here are your headlines this morning. Breitbart reports, Xi Jinping tells soldiers, get ready to fight and win. Xi Jinping visited Beijing's Central Military Commission Command Center, telling soldiers there to prepare to fight and win any future wars. Xi reportedly told the troops that China is facing increased instability and uncertainty and its military tasks remain arduous. The report did not elaborate on Xi's naming of any particular sources of uncertainty, though Beijing state media arms uh, arms often mention the United States as a potential threat to the party. The New York Post reports Pennsylvania state lawmaker Tony DeLuca re-elected despite dying last month. A state lawmaker in Pennsylvania was re-elected on Tuesday night despite passing away last month. Tony DeLuca, a Democrat, died of lymphoma on October 9th, too late for election officials to change the ballots. DeLuca was 85. DeLuca, who served in the state's legislature for 39 years, defeated the Green Party's Quinoa Livingston, garnering more than 85% of the vote in his deep blue Allegheny County district. The Hill reports California voters reject tax on wealthy that would have promoted electric vehicles. Under the proposal, the residents who make more than $2 million each year would pay an additional 1.75% personal income tax on earnings above $2 million. According to the state's official voter guide, if it had passed, the measure was expected to bring in $3.5 billion to $5 billion for the state in order to support electric vehicle and wildfire response prevention programs. Sky News reports Russia flew 140 euros worth, uh, 140 million euros worth in cash and captured Western weapons to Iran in return for deadly drones, source claims. A Russian military aircraft secretly transported a ca- the cash and three models of munition, a British N-Law anti-tank missile, a U.S. Javelin anti-tank missile, and a Stinger anti-aircraft missile to an airport in Tehran in the early hours of August 20th, according to an anonymous source. The munitions give Tehran the possibility of reverse engineering the weapons. The weapons had been part of a shipment of UK and US military equipment intended for the Ukrainian military that fell into Russian hands. And those were your headline news this morning. God love you. The saint of the day is Pope Saint Leo the Great. Saint Leo the Great, also known as Pope Saint Leo I, was born into a Roman aristocratic family. His response to the call of the Lord transformed him into one of the greatest popes of Christian history. 
In fact, he was the first pope to be given the title, quote, the Great. St. Leo the Great became a very well-known deacon of the church by 431, serving the church under the pontificate of Pope Celestine I. Leo was widely respected for his love of the Lord, intelligence, and persuasive nature. He was also gifted in bringing reconciliation between disputing groups of Christians. Leo was then unanimously selected as the next pope after Pope Sixtus III in 440. Pope Leo was deeply dedicated to his service as pope. He saw himself as privileged to sit in the chair of St. Peter as the servant of the servants of God. He worked diligently as Peter's successor. Over time, Leo became known as one of the best administrative popes of the ancient church. Pope Leo I focused his pontificate on four main areas. He continuously worked to oppose and root out numerous heresies which were threatening the Western church. Among them was Pelagianism, which involved denying original sin and failing to understand the necessity of God's grace for salvation. One of the other major heresies threatening the church at the time was Manichaeism. Pope Leo I was a great defender of the orthodox teaching of the Catholic Christian Church, and he protected the full deposit of the faith. The whole church is still indebted to him for this. Along with his dynamic faith and outstanding theological wisdom, Pope Leo I was also courageous. He led Rome's defense against Attila the Hun's barbarian invasion in Italy in 452 by taking on the role of peacemaker. That's a whole story that I wish he could tell. Pope Leo I was renowned for his profoundly spiritual sermons. With his words, Leo could reach the everyday needs and interests of his people. It was his reputation as, quote, the instrument of the call to holiness, well-versed in scripture and ecclesiastical awareness, end quote, that helped him become one of the greatest popes in the history of the church. Leo died on November 10th, 461. He wished to be buried as close as possible to St. Peter's tomb. His body was first laid in the entrance of St. Peter's Basilica, but was later moved inside the Basilica in 688. In 1754, Pope Benedict XIV proclaimed Leo I as a doctor of the church. Pope Leo I faithfully and unequivocally held to the belief that everything he did and said as Pope represented Jesus Christ and St. Peter. He discharged his office in vocation with dynamic faith, great pastoral care, and excellence. Pope St. Leo the Great, pray for us. Praise be to God in all things. The gospel today comes to us from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 25. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said in reply, The kingdom of God cannot be observed, and no one will announce, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. There will be those who will say to you, Look, there he is, or look, here he is. Do not go off, do not run in pursuit, for just as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer greatly and be rejected by this generation. The Gospel of the Lord. Alleluia. 
praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, cross is a sign of contradiction. This is the prophecy of Simeon, the the, the sorrows of Our Lady, that uh, she knew that her son must be a sign of contradiction, that he would suffer for the salvation of souls. So, and the reality is, the bottom line is, wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God standing in your midst. Could you imagine just looking in his eyes as he was saying, making this statement? Imagine that light bulb going off in your head and you're like connecting the dots and you're like, oh, oh, wow. Like, wow. Like, that would be just so mind-blowing to me. Haydock's commentary says, the Pharisees expected a Messiah powerful according to this world, a conqueror, a monarch, a revenger of the injuries of Israel, one who would restore them to liberty and bless them with temporal goods and prosperity. In Jesus, they saw nothing which corresponded to these magnificent hopes and therefore asked him by way of insult and reproach when this kingdom of God would come, which he so often talked of and announced to his disciples. He answers them that the manifestation of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom shall not be effected in a conspicuous, splendid manner. It shall be brought about insensibly, and the accomplishment of the designs of the omnipotence of our Lord shall appear as a casualty and the effect of secondary causes. You shall not see the Messiah coming at the head of armies, the spread and spread terror and desolation. His arrival shall not be announced by ambassadors. Everything in the establishment of my kingdom shall be the reverse of temporal power. In other words, the cross of Christ is the coming of the kingdom of God. Hadar commentary goes on to point out that these disciples will one day wish to see him but they will not. They will wish to consult him, to take advice from him, because they will be punished, they will be afflicted, they will be persecuted, they will go through a great time of trial. But our Lord, in his grace and his wisdom, and even in his mercy, hides himself in the Holy Eucharist. And that one-on-one, face-to-face conversation has, uh, has been held back. But when he comes, like the lightning flashing from one side of the sky to the next, it shall penetrate our soul, says the Venerable Bede. And nothing hidden will remain hidden. It will all be revealed. No one gets out without God's justice. No one gets away with it. Everyone will give an account. More coming up right after this break. We're going to say the quiet part out loud next. Can we be happy without God? Atheists say yes, we Christians say yes, but only to a certain extent. What's our reason? There are some natural human desires that can be satisfied without living for God. The desire for sensory pleasure, success, and loving relationships. There are certain desires, however, that can't be satisfied without God. For example, we don't just desire some love, we desire infinite love, love without limit. This is manifest when we get frustrated with imperfect manifestations of it. The same is true for knowledge, justice, and beauty. Since God alone is infinite in these perfections, only He can satisfy our desires for them. Therefore, to borrow from St. Augustine, without God, our hearts would be forever restless. And my friends, a restless heart is an unhappy heart. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. 
For 2,000 years, we've helped the poor and comforted the sick. We've educated generations of children, developed the scientific method and college system. We support marriage and human life. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are the Catholic Church. With over one billion in our family, sharing in the fullness of Christian faith in the church started by Jesus. If you've been away, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome home. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired, I'm your host, Joe McLean. So good to be on with you this morning. Real quick, can I just thank everybody who's subscribed to our podcast feed over on iTunes. Thank you for leaving a review as well. I was checking the stats yesterday. Um, it's, it's growing. Praise be to God. So grateful. Uh, do us a favor, and if you've not, and you do like podcasts, do go over to the iTunes store. Search for Catholic Drive Time. Subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. It's a fantastic way to help us reach new people, and it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, five-star reviews are the ticket to growing in, uh, in their algorithm over there. So we would be grateful if you would join us in this work. Again, just search for Catholic Drive Time. You can always find everything linked up on our website as well, grnonline.com forward slash CDT. Coming up at 15 or the 35 past the hour, Jim Tui is going to be on. He has a new book out called To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa. We're going to talk to him about Mother Teresa and a very interesting story shared uh, in connection to Hillary Clinton. And uh, we're going to ask him about that coming up at 35 past. Do join us if you can. There are lots of stories in the news that are a great concern to me, and I'm sure they are to you as well. And everybody's talking about the midterm results so far. Uh, Not the red wave, the red trickle, uh, the red vapor. I mean, there's lots of uh, really good memes out there at this point. Uh, But I think it was George Neumeier over at the American Spectator that said the quiet part out loud that I think he he is spot on here. And here's the kicker, and this is the, this is the statement that I think really sums it up well uh, in one of George's articles over there. He says, whoever owns the culture, in the end, owns politics. Okay? Whoever owns the culture, in the end, owns politics. Got it? Now think about this. On Tuesday, Gen Z showed up huge to, to vote. 79% of Gen Z voters, 18 to 29, what were they most concerned about? They were most concerned about LGBTQ rights and abortion rights. Before I read the article over with the American Spectator, let me show you the, uh, some of the exit polls coming out of CNN. Uh, let's, let's look at the ages. 18 to 29%. Uh, 63% of those folks that came out, they came to vote for Democrats. 63%. That's, more, that's almost double uh, of the same age group for Republicans. So let that sink in. When you, when you scroll down here and you're looking at all of these categories, marriage status, ideology, race, region, gender, uh, all of this stuff, one of the things that really stands out to me in looking at this, military uh, veterans, income, married with children, hmm, the vast majority of voters... In this, ele- in this midterm election, uh, not, no, ch- no marriage, no children. Mostly women, unmarried, without children, and abortion and LGBTQ rights was prime among those. All right, so you got that. Those are the exit polls. That's the statistical data coming out of the midterm elections. 
By the way, the 79% of 18 to 29-year-olds being concerned with LGBTQ and abortion, that comes from a, uh, a Democrat pollster. John Volpe, I think was his name. He's out of the, uh, he's director of the polling of the, for the Institute for Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. <clears throat> Here's the George Newmeyer article, and it's uh, entitled America's Death Wish. Whoever owns the culture in the end owns politics at the American Spectator. He says the GOP's la- uh, lackluster performance on Tuesday speaks not only of the party's feckless, but also to the, uh, liberalism of the American people. Even if the GOP had run uniformly strong candidates, they would still have struggled to persuade Americans in enthrall to the left-wing propaganda. And let me say it again, because I didn't read that well. He says, even if the GOP had run uniformly strong candidates, assuming which insinuates that they didn't, they would still have struggled to persuade Americans in thrall to left-wing propaganda. The truth is that whoever owns the culture in the end owns politics. The complacent assumption of many pundits in that politics result revolves around the economy, stupid. But what truly animates politics is the culture that shapes voters. Whoever controls that culture usually wins. That's the quiet part said out loud. And what do I mean? Well, people on the right often embrace these issues on the left they embrace the lgbtq agendas they embrace the abortion agendas i mean when's the last time you heard a strong defense for conserving marriage between a man and a woman yeah exactly the article goes on to say the left has dominated american culture for decades and thus enjoys a perpetual advantage in our politics Democrats appeal to raw emotion. Republicans appeal to common sense. Democrats encourage voters to take the low road, whereas principled Republicans urge them to take the higher one. Needless to say, the latter pitch is a much harder sell in a corrupted democracy. It is easier to win in American politics as an advocate of self-indulgent wokeness than a proponent of the natural moral law. Of course, most pundits never blame the irrationality of the people for an election outcome. They seek instead to flatter the people and attribute their rejection of a particular party to a good cause. Hence, pundits, even conservatives, chalked up the people's indifference to the GOP as a distaste for Trumpian chaos and so forth. But that flattering explanation makes little sense given that the people re-elected a swath of incumbents responsible for our chaotic and unstable country. Let's get real. The American people are electing the polls they deserve. The demagogues who mirror the woke prejudices of an increasingly propagandized people. According to the media, threats to democracy constituted one of the top concerns of the people. How lame. Large segments of the American public clearly swallow Joe Biden's self-serving malarkey on the subject, a subject as a whole. Never mind that Biden was clearly clearly referring not to authentic threats to democracy, but challenges to regnant liberalism. Biden is not afraid for democracy, but afraid of it. He desires a one-party state. This is, again, George Neumeyer at the American, American Spectator. The article goes on to say, The relative success of the Democrats on Tuesday uh, is a measure not of the public's rationality, but of its submission to wokeness. Those in the 18 to 29 demographic voted for the Democrats overwhelmingly, 
a tribute not to their wisdom, but to their lack of it. These voters entered the booth after receiving a warped education at colleges and universities, swimming in wokeness. It is nearly impossible to impress upon this generation the dangers of liberalism. They simply shrug at any description of them. True, the inept leaders of the GOP failed to rouse their own side to turn out in large numbers, but that is also a measure of the left's cultural hegemony, which is an infiltrated, which has infiltrated the Republican Party and rendered it increasingly impotent. The message of the Republicans is pathetic and boils down to saying that it will follow in the same direction as the Democrats, but do so at slightly slower speeds. The defeat of GOP Pennsylvania Senate candidate Mehmet Oz leaves egg on the face of conservative kingmakers like Sean Hannity, who lectured rank and file Republicans that Oz alone was electable. Uh, Hannity not only divorced his wife, but left the Catholic faith. Just keep that in mind. Obviously not the opponent of Oz, whom Hannity smeared, uh, who couldn't have done any worse than the uh, smarmy pitchman. Oz managed to lose to a stroke victim who could barely form sentence fragments. If conservatives are serious about recapturing American politics, they must first wrest American culture away from the left. That would require restoring conservatism to religion and civil institutions. But conservatives, under the sway of liberalism, disdain that hard work and wouldn't want to achieve that restoration, even if it were possible. They, too, look down on homeschoolers and devout Christians. Does anybody really think Rona McDaniel, the Republican National Committee chair who sends out gay pride tweets, gives a care about real conservatism? Any normal party would sack her after presiding over such an embarrassing party performance, but she is sure to remain in place, spewing the most tired, opportunistic drivel until 2024. Similarly, the GOP is likely to give the speakership of the House to the painfully ineffectual Kevin McCarthy, even though his commitment to America proved a total flop. It has to be admitted that the Democrats, for all their flaws, practice politics far more seriously than the GOP. The Democrats revive their fallen, as in the case of Fetterman, while the GOP shoots theirs. Notice all the complaining among the GOP uh, consultant class about J.D. Vance, whose victory proved, provided rather, provided one of the few bright spots on a bleak night. Let's hope Vance remains unimpressed by these country club Republicans. Gimmicks and aping the wokeness of the Democrats will not heal the GOP's woes. The purpose of politics, after all, is not simply to win but to win on the principles essential to saving the country. That's, one, that's only possible if the culture changes and reflects those principles. The predominant culture today in America is addicted to a civilizational death wish as any of the progressive countries in Europe. Any GOP uh, autopsy on Tuesday's morbid performance must begin with a thorough analysis of that fundamental sickness and a commitment to cultural reconstruction. That's the article out of the American Spectator. He's got another one. I won't read the other one to you, but I think it's equally uh, worth a look at. And that's uh, maybe America hasn't suffered enough. And here, and I make this point. You've heard me make this point before. But at the end of the day, I think 
of all of the conversation, the talk, the bringing up the issues at the polls. Well, you know, Maricopa County had all these 60 poll stations broken down and there was pr- issues in Harris County. and There was issues in Pennsylvania and there's issues in New Jersey and there was this and that. I mean, yeah, shenanigans happen in every election. There's no getting around that. I mean, they've, they've, that's always been the case. Is it getting worse? Yeah, there's an argument to be made there. But putting that to the side, whether it did or didn't, I, I, I think is, you know, the least point, the biggest point is, let's wake up. Let's look around. Your neighbor is embracing LGBTQ abortion and for dangerous ideologies. They want this. Part of the issues that I've always had, and I've and I, gotten in many arguments with my Conservative Republican friends. Brent Haynes is a good guy. He and I argued for two hours uh, back in 20, I think it was 16, in front of a church in in Houston uh, over Donald Trump. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around how we were about to elect a uh, reality TV star. Like, I just felt like, are we even being serious anymore? Now, I get it. There were some good things that he did under his uh, administration. Pro-life judges. I'm with you. His foreign policy, I think, was pretty decent. There's, but there were some things I didn't like. Did he support? Did he defend traditional marriage between a man and a woman? No. And this is the point of the article that George brings up. We are conserving what again? And the reality is we can talk politics. We can talk polls. We can talk statistics. But unless we're going to recapture the culture Unless we are going to engage the civilization on an evangelical level to evangelize them, not only in hopes of saving their soul, but to transforming society that might make it safe for my grandkids to grow up in, then we're not talking serious. That's the quiet part said out loud. I'd like to get George Newmeyer on at some point, maybe next week. We'll see. But hey, coming up after the break, more breaking news and stories, and then we're going to talk about Mother Teresa of Calcutta with Jim Tui. All of that and more is coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever noticed that the world associates fanaticism with religion? But G.K. Chesterton says that the strangest fanaticism that fills our time is the fanatical hatred of morality, especially of Christian morality. It is the irreligious who are fanatical in their hatred of religion. They hate religion because religion is the only basis for morality. They hate morality because it is clear. And they prefer things to be vague. Vague to the point where they can call wrongs rights. But we cannot call something a right when it defies God's laws. We can only call it a sin because all rights come from God. And God is not going to break his own laws. Neither should we. Want more than a minute? Visit our website, chesterton.org. It's to truly save souls. It's to save souls. And we have a lot of different media platforms, whether it's through our TV, radio, music, and it's all promoting this culture that is really here to kill, steal, and destroy souls. And to have that Catholic voice on the air that is proclaiming the good news and able to touch and transform lives, um, what better thing to support? The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. And now more headlines. Just in case you missed it, this one is from Breitbart. Exit poll says Generation Z and millennials break big for Democrats. 
Voters between the ages of 18 and 29 cast their ballots in favor of Democrats 63% of the time in the 2022 elections, exit polling data found. The age demographic accounted for 12% of the electorate, in contrast to those aged 10 to 44, uh, rather 30 to 44, who made up 21% of the electorate and voted 51% for Democrats and 47% for Republicans. The Postmillennial reports Brittany Griner sent to Russian penal colony to serve nine-year sentence. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been transferred to a Russian penal colony to serve her nine-year sentence, the Associated Press reports. Griner, a star player with the Phoenix Mercury and a two-time Olympic gold medalist, was arrested in February 2022 at Moscow, uh, Moscow Airport, I won't pronounce the airport, it's too complicated, after vape canisters containing cannabis oil were found in her luggage. She was convicted in August and sentenced to nine years in prison. Don't do drugs, kids. CNA reports how the image of the Virgin Al-Mudina survived the 8th century Muslim invasion. This is an interesting story. I think you'll like it. During the Muslim invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century, the faithful decided to hide an image of the Virgin Mary in one of the towers of the wall that surrounded the Spanish capital. They placed it there in order to protect the statue since during that time the Muslims eliminated all signs of Catholicism that crossed their path. Years later, the Spanish tried to recover the image, although without success, since they were unable to find the exact place in the wall where the Virgin had been hidden. Because of this, King Alfonso VI decided to hold a procession around the wall in honor of the Virgin, which took place on November 9, 1085. While the faithful processed around Madrid's wall, part of the wall of one of the towers collapsed. Behind the rubble appeared the image of the Virgin next to two lighted candles. Since then, the image has been known as the Virgin of Al-Mudina, since in Arabic, Al-Mudina means citadel, or walled military compound. Under this title, Our Lady was named Patroness of the City by decree in 1908. And those were your headline news this morning. God love you. Praise be to God in all things. Thank you, Rudy, for keeping us up today. Joining us now by Zoom chat is Jim Tui, founder and chief executive officer of Aging with Dignity, a nonprofit organization that he established in Tallahassee, Florida, back in 96, and today heads uh, its Washington, D.C. office. Uh, he also has a book out called To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa, published by Simon & Schuster. Good morning to you, Mr. Tui. Good morning to you, Joe. How are you? Praise be to God. I am alive, and that counts. How are you? It's, I couldn't couldn't disagree more. <laughs> uh, it, it counts, of course, is uh, the fact that you and I are together talking about the Lord and all the goodness that God shows us. Amen. Amen. And I agreed with what you just said, by the way, on the previous segment of your of your show regarding the need for us to stand up as we run to the 2024 elections and get serious about it. And so good for you for voicing that. Praise be to God. Let's talk about Mother Teresa. This book looks very interesting. I have not had the chance to read it, but uh, I, I was listening to several of your interviews on the subject. And it seems like there's some fascinating personal insight that we probably haven't heard elsewhere. Uh, and, it, you know, she passed now. It was 1997. And I wasn't even Catholic when she passed. And I remember paying attention <laughs> at, to the gravity of her funeral. Like the whole world stopped to pay attention to her funeral. Can you just touch on that for a second? I mean, this is a Catholic nun in India that truly did impact the whole world. She did. And I was there at that funeral and to see the streets lined with uh, hundreds of thousands of Indian 
citizens, Hindus mostly, many Muslims, very, very few Christians really that live in Bengal, to, to see the outpouring of love. She truly was a mother to the world. I said that at the time that she was the most Mary-like person since Mary, and that she was virgin and mother to, to the world. And uh, I think the source of so much of the attraction about Mother Teresa was her motherhood, which is under attack today, you know, so so much of Mother Teresa's life is a reminder of the beauty of motherhood and its importance. Uh, when you hear people refer to women as birthing persons, you know, to, to say that's a mother is an affront to the great dignity of the woman. And Mother Teresa, I think, witnessed that. That's why she was so outspoken about abortion. So the book tries to capture her humanness and tries to show uh, through stories. I had the privilege to know her the last 12 years of her life, to travel some with her, to advise her. I was her lawyer. Uh, there were great stories in the book, I think, about how Mother had dealt with worldly affairs. So the book really gives a portrayal of her as a person and how this she became a saint, not in, not be, in spite of her humanity, but because of it. How did you... How did you get to meet her? What what uh, what caused uh, things to line up that you ended up spending twelve years of your life as her as her attorney? Well, it's a great story, I guess. Uh, a, the short story is it's the mercy of God, the kindness towards sinners. I was a I was a very disgruntled and disaffected Catholic uh, who had was very empty life, and uh, but I had seen from afar this woman living her faith. So I tell that story in the first four chapters of the book. Uh, and also parallel it with a lot of Mother Teresa's biography to try to make the story interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I was I went to into Calcutta for one day to meet her just because I wanted to see someone that was living the gospel. I wasn't, but I saw that she was, and and uh, she uh, it was a very brief meeting. Tiny little woman uh, who had such a tremendous focus. I met her the week she turned seventy five. She was so focused, serious. She was everything I wasn't. But by God's grace, I was in the right place at the right time because she needed a lawyer in the United States. She was opening homes for people with AIDS. She had immigration issues with her sisters. So it all kind of came together, and uh, and I was I was smitten. <laughs> I followed her like a little puppy dog from that point on because I saw that she was the real deal, and I knew I wasn't. Uh, but by God's grace, she introduced me to Jesus in his disguise of the poor, and uh, and and that visit to her home for the dying changed my life. Seems like it's a common story among those who did get to meet Mother Teresa in person, that uh, there was something that really attracted them to her, uh, to the point where they found themselves doing things that uh, that they wouldn't have otherwise considered. And in your case, listening to you talk about this book, uh, one of the first things that uh, she got you to do was clean some man's wound out or something like that. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I went to the home for the dying because she said, why don't you go there? And uh, I thought she meant get a tour. Uh, when I got there, the sister thought I came to volunteer. So she she handed me some cotton and some solution and said, go clean the man in bed 46 that has scabies. And that's why, Joe, I can talk about it because there wasn't the slightest part of me that went back to that bed for good purpose. I went because I was too proud to admit Mm-hmm. to the sister that I didn't want to touch the guy. I was just, I couldn't do it. I was too proud. So it was pride that got me started. And, uh, but, but by going back there, I ended up living in the home for people with AIDS. I worked in it three and a half years, but I lived in it day in and day out for a year. And uh, it was just a tremendous experience to, to see the beauty of, of 
Jesus in his disguise of the poor to have the privilege to accompany men and women as they were dying. And they died very quickly back then. So those experiences, yeah. But I, I, going to you, you know, you say you, you, you entered the church after mother died. I think mother's impact on people that never met her is going to be even greater. I just think that she has a real message to tell the world today about this primal need to love and to be loved. And mm. that's more important than food and shelter. And I think the world needs to see it. We've got so much acrimony. You have a guy like Trump that's out there fighting, accusing, and and it just it's we're we were made for great things to love and to be loved. She said, and I think that needs to be rediscovered. You said, uh, quoting her, "A life that is not lived for others is not worth living," and I think it's a great one-liner. Um, yeah, that. Uh, that I think all of us could learn to live. So I think this is one of the arguments I tend to make. I just gave us a parish mission in New Hampshire. I made this point, not quite as succinctly as this, uh, and that if we're honest about ourselves, our goals in life are too shallow. Uh, You know, I have three grandkids. Um, What I want is them to grow up and be happy and successful, go to good colleges, live in nice houses, drive nice cars, have fancy friends. Um, But the reality is that and a nickel doesn't get us to heaven. Uh, it's a little too right. shallow. Our outlook in the world is too shallow. That's right. Well, she she was, of course, a follower of Jesus Christ who led from below. He was there washing the feet of his disciples to teach them how to serve and to discover the joy of service and to be other-minded. The problem with our society today is people are self-centered instead of other-minded. And if you don't make that transition, you end up being a victim, a child. The whole infantilization uh, that we see in colleges today where they treat it as an extension of childhood instead of a passage to adulthood. These are problems in our society that aren't going to go away without a deliberate effort to discover the joy of serving, of giving, of loving until it hurts, of living like Mother Teresa did. Mm. We're just about a minute to break, but you also said something about uh, how she preferred, you. She wasn't. she never allowed fundraising. She preferred the insecurity of God's providence uh, to to the the security of a good steady fundraising plan. I just you didn't say it like that, but I thought that was uh, that was brilliant. It kind of, I'm gonna we're gonna pause because we're at a break. I'm gonna let you answer it after the break. But I compared this to uh, to uh, of course um, Mother Angelica at EWTN, and uh, who also was in very similar ways just totally depended upon God's providence to the point where she acted very boldly, took great risks. Uh, that could have been economically devastating. But nonetheless, uh, what boldness does inspire the rest of us if we would only have such courage? So I want to get you to address that with Mother Teresa of Calcutta on the other side of this break. Jim Tui is our guest. The book is To Love and Be Loved, a personal portrait of Mother Teresa, published by Simon & Schuster. And we're going to have that plus a lot more. I want to ask about Hillary Clinton as well. All that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. This is Jesuit Father Robert McTague, host of The Catholic Current, where we bring Christ to the world and the world to Christ. We look at current events through the eyes of faith. I hope you'll join us each Monday and Friday for guests and topics you can't afford to miss. That's The Catholic Current, heard Monday and Friday right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern.
Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. According to 1 Corinthians 11, receiving communion in an unworthy manner can result in sickness and or death. If communion is simply wafer and juice as opposed to body and blood, doesn't the possibility of sickness and death just seem a little over the top? So here's the three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. First off, in the Bread of Life discourse in John 6, Jesus says, He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. Note, he said drink my blood. He did not say drink my wine or grape juice. Well, no comment commentary needed there. Secondly, you going to walk? The disciples did not walk away from Jesus over a symbolic teaching of body and blood. They walked over how literally Jesus was teaching them. Also, they did not walk over the idea that feeding on Christ's body and blood is feeding on the Bible. No, no, no. And thirdly, your new response. My Catholic friend, when you are asked, hey, have you received Christ? Your answer is yes, every Sunday at Mass. That's how I know objectively that Christ is in me. be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. So good to be on with you. Jim Tui is our guest. His book, To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa by Simon & Schuster, is our conversation. Welcome back to the show. So just before the break, I was bringing up that she preferred the, the, the insecurity of God's providence over fundraising. Can you talk about that for me? She did. She she didn't want to rely on bank accounts and on steady annuities and so forth, like colleges endow themselves. She wanted to depend on God's providence day to day. She didn't ask for money. People gave money. I saw her turn down money. In her name, I gave back money that had been raised for her because she didn't want fundraising. So she really, truly depended from the day one that she went out into Calcutta streets in December of 1948. Then a couple of women joined her. And then more. And by the end of that uh, first year, she had 12 women with her uh, living in this one room space on the third floor of a family home. That's how she started. You can just see that she herself depended on divine providence to go out to, and show her the way and how to serve the poor in the slums of Calcutta. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary story in the book about how this providence led to the missionaries of charity flourishing today. They're uh, in 139 countries all over the world, and it all started with her taking uh, that first step out into the slums of Calcutta, uh, and now look at these sisters courageous and bold all over the world. It's it's a beautiful testimony to the trust of God, in God and, and in divine providence. I have on several occasions tried to interview one of Mother's sisters. They won't come. <laughs> They won't come. They don't want the publicity. They don't want to be in the public eye that way. They are very simple uh, women, of course, and they just want to do what they feel God has called them to do. I find that utterly fascinating. Yeah, I've I've worked with them now for 37 years, and uh, they're just remarkable women. And the priests, the men that I've gotten to know, the missionaries of charity fathers that are in Tijuana and all over the world, too. Uh, it's it's a beautiful testimony that their lives are for Christ. And uh, th- it's not that they eschew the kind of work you're doing, and thank God for the work you're doing in Guadalupe Radio Network and all the good that you do in spreading the gospel, the joy of the gospel. But their mission is to the poor, and that's they're single-minded in, in touching Jesus in his disguise of the poor and following Matthew 25 that when, you know, when I— when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? Well, when, and mother used to used to take the hand of a person. I saw her do it to Janet Reno once, and and said, "You did it to me." And count that on the five fingers. 
to remind them that this was to Jesus and it wasn't social work. And so that's why the sisters, I think, keep their 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 head on and heart on the, the lives of the poor and this encounter with Christ. And Jim, you know, I was uh, thinking about this during the break and you know, many times people uh, would talk about the, the great Hitchens controversy where he was uh, criticizing Mother Teresa and the atheists like to make hay of this quite a bit. Uh, I'd like you to to give us a, a brief uh, rundown of that situation. But also, and almost more importantly, I mean, who really cares what uh, atheist blogs have to say about Mother Teresa? But more more serious, though, are the accusations that come from Catholics uh, many Catholics will criticize Mother Teresa and say that she held to religious indifferentism. Uh, could you address those two uh, criticisms of Mother Teresa? Sure. You know, and I spent a whole chapter on the critics and on Hitchens and on the standard stuff you see on the Internet. Now, if you do a search and put in Mother Teresa critics, you see some really vulgar, but most of all, untrue things about Mother. Uh, you know, Hitchens' claims that uh, you know, well, she flew first class, so she was a fraud. The airlines begged her to fly first class. She didn't want to fly first class. In fact, she spent the first 30 years of her missionary life in India. She didn't even leave the country. So she was in third class compartments on trains, jammed into trams and buses. I mean, so the idea that she was some kind of jet setter was just nonsense. But Hitchens, you know, loved to uh, portray her as a fraud because he is an atheist and that's his take on her. Um, she wasn't indifferent at all. She felt God converted people uh, that she didn't convert anyone. Uh, so she loved Hindus, Muslims, anyone that God brought. She saw everyone as children of God. She, she was there to love them and to bring Christ to them and through her service, through her loving compassion. And I think that uh, those that were critics, you know, they never do the work. You know, <laughs> Hitchens spent one day in Calcutta and then he's an expert on, on missionaries of charity, you know, and so I think I think Mother Tree. I've been back to Calcutta twenty times, and when you see what these sisters do day in and day out in the streets, it's remarkable how they have put their faith into action and how it's having a changing effect on so many people's lives. Volunteers, everyone. You know, one thing that I, I really admired about Mother Teresa was, you know, and while I was in college, I uh, read her diary, and um, when I read it. The one thing that struck me was when she was called by God early in her life, that she stayed faithful to that call. And I've learned uh, that through the uh, reading the, the great spiritual writers that they say, one, when you make a decision in consolation, don't go back on it, especially when you go into desolation. And Mother Teresa really exemplifies that when she was felt called by God to this mission and then afterwards, she never heard the voice of God directly ever again, yet she stayed faithful to this very radical mission. Uh, could you speak about that a little? Sure. She had a darkness. I have a chapter in the book about the darkness that she lived uh, that, that was described in her own words in her own pen writing when she uh, wrote letters to her spiritual director saying that she felt abandoned by God and forsaken by God. So after having these visions of Jesus, which... Father Brian Kolodajczyk's book, Come Be My Light, has the letters themselves and mother's own words describing them. Then God withdrew his sensible presence from her, and so she had to seek him in the darkness, and she did feel abandoned. And she lived what Christ lived, that, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, you know, I, No one knew about this until after her death that she had this darkness. We thought she had this rich interior life that Jesus was 
giving her special consolations. And uh, to find out that she, in fact, had the opposite, that she had nothing but aridity and a, dark, a long, dark night made me love her even more because she did persevere. I was in her hospital room with her in Calcutta when she was in intensive care. And there she was in her bed. And directly in front of her bed was the, the, the tabernacle with Jesus present there in the Eucharist. She had an image of the Blessed Mother, Our Lady of Guadalupe, like the one Joe has behind him. She, you know, directly in front of her, she had a little photo of the little flower there. Mother knew that she had come from God and was going to God. And so even though she had this darkness, she learned to find Jesus in the darkness, to befriend it, to accept it, and to trust that God had a loving purpose for it. So, yeah, I think that uh, the, the critics that like to, to point out that, oh, she lost her faith, didn't understand her because they don't understand faith and they don't understand how the mercy of God and the tenderness of God works. Uh, let me tag into that for a second. So uh, those critics that uh, want to say that she she didn't evangelize, that she simply was a social worker, I think is sort of the heart of their arguments. And yet you share a story about uh, Hillary Clinton and how she interacted with the Clintons. This is one of the things that fascinates me about Mother Teresa, even back when I wasn't even Catholic at the time. She seemed to have an impact and an opportunity. God presented an opportunity for this humble woman with this uh, leathery skin and meat hawk hands uh, to engage with the most powerful and elite people around the world. And uh, who is more powerful and elite than the Clintons, for crying out loud? Books and movies have been made about these people. So uh, can you give me the insight when she met the Clintons? What was her relationship with Hillary Clinton in particular? What was she trying to do? Well, she, she went to that National Prayer Breakfast in February 1994, and she gave this very strong speech in defense of life, saying that abortion was the greatest destroyer of peace in the world, saying that if someone didn't want the child, give them to her, she would take care of the child. So it was a very strong speech with, with President Clinton directly to her right, you know, feet away from her. But afterwards, she met the Clintons privately, and Hillary cried in that meeting, and, uh, and they talked about, let's work on opening a home for people for adoption, uh, so to, to promote adoption and for uh, children that could be placed into loving homes. And so they worked on that project together, and the house opened in June of 1995. So, and, and it really affected Mrs. Clinton. In fact, I, I was part of the U.S. delegation that went to the funeral for mother, and Mrs. Clinton led that delegation. I was in the back of the plane with two of the sisters and she came back there and she said, I never understood why mother loved me so much. And she said, uh, you know, that she got a lot of hate mail from Christians. So to your point about how did mother evangelize, every day she prayed this prayer. She said, let us preach you without preaching, not by words, but by our example, by the catching force, the sympathetic influence of what we do, the evident fullness of the love our hearts bear to you. This was a prayer she prayed every day. So she clearly was a great missionary and carrier of the gospel, and she saw that in some situations, words alone didn't suffice. Of course, she preached the, the gospel. Any, any speech I saw her give, she was preaching the gospel. But she saw it with Hindus and Muslims and others that a very powerful way to bring the gospel to them was through her loving acts of service. With Hillary Clinton in particular, it sounds like uh, she maintained some kind of relationship with Hillary through correspondence over the years. Uh, and uh, and I think I heard you say that she asked others to pray for Mrs. Clinton. Do you think she was trying to convert her? I think she loved her and saw God loved her and saw that this woman uh, turned to her 
uh, and trusted her. And so she befriended her. I, I, I think I can't judge Hillary Clinton's spiritual life and where she is. Uh, but I know that she, uh, mother had this impact on people like Princess Diana. There's, there's a chapter in the book about how mother had these different friendships, uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, so I, I, there were a lot of people drawn to her, movie stars, Julia Roberts, Penelope Cruz. They would seek out mother because they saw in her an authentic messenger of the gospel, I think. I think they were attracted to Jesus in her. And I think that she recognized that God was using her in their lives. We're down to getting down to the wire here. Let me ask you this. Uh, Mother seemed to physically suffer quite a bit over the course of her life. Can you give us uh, a sense of the extent of that physical suffering? Uh, She was remarkable. She, she, uh, you know, she had five heart attacks. She had a stroke. She had malaria dozens of times. She broke her three ribs, she broke her arm, she broke her shoulder, broke her leg, had her head gashed, 19 stitches, bitten by a dog, had to go through the rabies treatments. You can go on and on, bad back pain. The book, chapter 14, covers the last 48 hours of her life where she suffered a great deal, enormous back pain. She took pain medicine and she offered all the, and it didn't really work, and she offered all of her suffering to Jesus. So yeah, mother mother was... uh, she lived the, the, the way of the cross as well as the triumph of the cross. And, uh, and it All was right. remarkable how she never complained, never complained, wow. and uh, just loved. Well, we're out of time. Jim Tui, author of To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa, published by Simon & Schuster. You can find it at store.fivewishes.org. God bless you, Mr. Tui. Thanks for sharing Mother Teresa with us today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Adrian. Have a great day. Praise be to God. Coming up in the next hour, Hector Molina, the gospel and the game show. Go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT. God love you. God bless you. Catholic Radio gives us something all day, every day to fill our lives with our faith. We are completely inundated by the world constantly every time you go out shopping the music that's playing the the visuals that you see tv everything we need catholicism filling our minds the guadalupe radio network radio for your soul Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. When you walk into your non-denominational church or your megachurch, what do you see? What stands out to you? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, observations in a Catholic church. You will notice at least eight items, all of which have religious, historical, or biblical significance. Secondly, what are those items? As soon as you walk in, the can't-miss baptismal font, a stone altar, stained glass windows, 14 stations of Christ's passion, statues, a gold tabernacle, a lit candle near the tabernacle, and a large crucifix. Thirdly, my take. So, what seems to fill your church and truly move you toward Jesus? Oh, I know you don't need a physical or superfluous objects to move you toward Jesus. He's everywhere and in your heart. And that is true. But tell that to Moses, David, and Solomon, who were under strict and exact directions from God on how to build his house and then fill it with his Shekinah glory. I mean, does a comfy chair, does a flashy Fender guitar, does a well-fashioned stage move you toward contemplation and holiness? Remember, stages are for entertainment, but sanctuaries are for worship. 
Donnie, what two important things do we receive when we go to Mass? Scripture and the Eucharist. Great job. You're so smart. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Are you on the CDT Insider email list? Hi, Joe McLean here. And every week I send you cool stuff straight to your inbox, goodies that you're not going to want to miss. Go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT and get signed up today. Hey there. If you're not a Catholic... Thank you so much for listening to AM 1430 KSHJ Houston. I'm Station Manager Tim Mott, and it really means a lot to me that you chose to spend this time with the Guadalupe Radio Network. At 15 past the hour, we're going to play Fear and Trembling. Prizes are at stake. You could win. It's possible. It's possible. I still have not been able to get uh, Rudy to admit publicly that he is the $2 billion winner at the Powerball. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. Nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, nonetheless. Uh, but uh, winning the, uh, it's a rosary pouch that we're giving away? Yes, a we leather. have an awesome, awesome gift from uh, from Victor Mendoza, Mendoza Leathercraft. And he's uh, given us this awesome Horween Chromexcel leather. Horween. Horween. Okay, what is Horween? Okay, Horween is a company, and they make these really awesome pull-up leathers. Mm-hmm incredible colors the richness of the leather it ages over time too so he's uh, given us a leather rosary patch and a keychain set um and the keychain has a solid brass setting so it's a really awesome parish i'm mean, sorry it's, <laughs> awesome. it's an awesome gift he's uh he's uh, a fellow catholic that's what i was reading but uh, yeah it's it's a great gift you yeah. should call in horween horween i guess i don't know enough about leather I thought I did. But so Horween is really well known. Mm-hmm. You can get <laughs> Hor- how Hor- well known is it? I didn't know. You can get some really nice leather shoes made out of Horween okay. leather. Okay. It's mm-hmm. a very uh, some of the Horween leathers are like stiffer. Mm-hmm. I see. So you can make shoes out of them, like loafers and things okay. like that. Okay. Very nice leather. Very very nice leather. Yeah. Speaking of nice leather, luxury. You know, I have to say, uh, for years, I had dragged my feet. Uh, speaking, Why don't you pick them up? Speaking of feet, <laughs> I. I Why have known about a shoe company. How many shoes do you go through dragging your feet every day? A bunch. I, you know, you can, I can't even begin to tell you. Like, uh, what, what was that lady's name in the Philippines who uh, owned a tremendous oh, amount? I've heard of this. Yeah. What was her name? She had like all I the. She had like a massive suit. Wasn't shoe she collection. royalty? Her husband was the president, and they were like corrupt. And I can't remember her name off the top of my head. The, uh, you just said the same thing twice. Yeah. Okay. Well, at any rate, I think I've had as many shoes as she did. Wow. I mean, I have gone, my, when I was a kid, my mother would buy like the Payless shoes because you get buy one, get one free. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and we uh, all remember what Payless smelled like. It's just, it's such a unique, delicious. And those shoes would last, smell. I don't know, a week, maybe. Who knows? I, and I was into skateboarding, so I ruined them even faster. Oh, man. So I've gone through a ton of shoes in my life. I dragged my feet on buying San Antonio shoes. What are those? Sack shoes. Okay, the San Antonio Company. I'm like, this is, looks like shoes for old people. Okay, I don't know. This isn't, mm, I'm not sure. 
Well, let me tell you, like five years ago, I finally broke four or five years ago, I finally broke down and bought them. And, and you still have them. The, I still have them. <laughs> Best decision of your life. <laughs> wow. They're, they're amazing. The quality of, and now I'm not It's like endorsed. you get what you pay for. We are not, I'm not endorsed. I'm not getting any Dude. benefit whatsoever from saying this. Eat your heart out, Dave Ramsey. They, <laughs> they, they're, I could, I could climb a mountain in these things. Wow. And they're black, soft leather shoes. They're comfortable. I mean, and that's the, how I feel about good boots. The, the shoe yeah, is still leather. in good shape. I mean, it's still like solid. That's how I feel about leather shoes. And I don't take care of them. I'll never like, buy rubber shoes. They gave me like, when I bought them, they were like 200 bucks. I'm like, you got, I've, listen, I bought my first two cars to combined didn't cost $200. Wait, so if it's 200 bucks straight up, that's your entry cost. If you divide that over five years, mm -hmm. are you really saving money? Yeah, <sighs> definitely. I'm still yeah. wearing them. I still have them. And they gave me like, uh, they gave me like, like uh, shoes. that's $40 a year. They gave me like some uh, cream mm. or something. They said, treat your, treat your shoes with cream. Wow. Never treated them. Huh. Ever. If you, if I you think have, I polished them If you twice. spend $200 and you've worn them for five years, yeah. that's $40 a year. I that's, just, I just don't buy shoes. For a good shoe that doesn't break down. That it, feels good too. That lasts. Like. Worth phew, it. I don't know. Hey, what do you guys think about Birkenstocks? I don't They're know. Based, what are Birkenstocks? Right? Yeah. Super based. I I still <laughs> wear based? I still wear boots that I got and when I was a sophomore in high school mm -hmm. and I'm still wearing them. That's like six, seven, eight, nine years ago. And these were cheap boots too. These were like hundred fifty dollar boots, hundred about hundred fifty dollar boots, which are cheap for boots. Mm -hmm. Had them for almost ten years now, and I'm still wearing them. Ten years. Mm -hmm. Now boots boots last longer in general. Yeah, mm -hmm. but shoes not so much. Like no. I just haven't had that that same experience. You know, the only downside is they do look like shoes for Email old, pe DeMarcos, old people. Email DeMarcos, thank you. Everybody's a commenting. Like, literally <laughs> 50 people are like, Imelda, 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 Imelda. Imelda, it's Imelda, Joe. Sir, Imelda, Joe. Why yes. don't Joe know this? Because <laughs> I'm old and I have old man shoes and I don't remember everything. That's why. But nonetheless, praise be to God. Hey, joining us right now via telephone is our good friend Hector Molina from Flyover Country. Uh, good morning to you, Hector. <laughs> Good morning, Joe. Have you ever bought a great shoe that you are j just amazed that it still works after five years? Have you ever done that? Have I bought a? I'm sorry, you said a what? shoe, uh, like a leather a shoe. shoe. I'm I'm sitting here in just awe of the fact that I still own these shoes from like five years ago, and they're still in great shape. I mean, worth every oh, yeah. penny. Absolutely. What was the brand? Just curious. The brand. Like, what's your favorite? That Shoe brand. <laughs> this is an interesting conversation. And is it in the gospel? <laughs> is it in Sunday's gospel? <laughs> Guys, I could spin this towards the gospel. Just give me a sec. I'm just wanting Shake to know what your favorite dust off from shoe your tennis shoes. Is. <laughs> let me tell you, I know something about Hector that uh, some people know, some insiders know, but maybe not everybody. Hector is the one Catholic I know who has the most stringent uh, taste in style of dress and dress code. Nice. He is wow. He is impeccable. Nice. I appreciate that. Uh, when, when, you, when you get to meet uh, uh, Hector in person, the man is dressed to the nines. I appreciate well-dressed people. Time. Well, thank you for uh, 
affirming my sartorial sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm right. I'm a jeans and t-shirt guy, Joe. So. Sure you are, Hector. Okay, okay. It's like Fetterman. I'm a man of the people. Right. You mean Harvard a Federal woman? Yeah. Right. Okay. Anyway, let's not talk politics. Let's instead talk the Sunday gospel. Luke 21 this weekend. I love I love that we're getting into the uh, the judgment era of gospel readings. Yeah, everything climaxes with the Feast of Christ the King. Our liturgical year concludes and climaxes with the celebration of Christ as our sovereign king. And just before the penultimate gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, focuses on this eschatological message delivered by Jesus, which is part of what biblical scholars call the Olivet Discourse, because he delivers it on the Mount of Olives. And just to set things up, Jesus, as we know, is in the temple, and he is teaching in the temple. This is post his triumphal entry into the Holy City, and he's been acclaimed as King of the Jews. He has cleansed the temple to the chagrin of the religious leaders there who are conspiring to entrap him. And so, as I mentioned in our last episode, a number of these religious parties, beginning with the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and then in our last week's gospel, the Sadducees confront Jesus, seeking to entrap him, but you just can't entrap Jesus. Uh, So he is leaving the temple, and this is estimated to be Holy Tuesday. And as he's exiting the temple, his disciples remark they exclaim great admiration and wonder at the site of the temple. Now, people have to remember, this was no ordinary temple. I mean, this was the most magnificent temple, the most grand temple. It was considered one of the ancient, the modern, I mean, one of the wonders of the ancient world, rather. And so pilgrims, when they came to Jerusalem, okay, Uh, they would marvel at the temple because it was something that they had never otherwise experienced and had beheld with their own eyes in their entire lives. So there was a lot of ooing and eyeing, uh, especially from the disciples. They came from the northern country, from the Galilee, the backwater country. And so they turned to Jesus and they marvel. And Jesus' response launches him into what is known as the Olivet Discourse, as they're leaving the temple, the disciples remark, and then Jesus absolutely floors them by declaring, as for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, for our modern-day ears, I mean, we know that this is a pretty bold statement, but most of us do not have a clue in terms of just the, the significance of this statement, the fact that he was alluding to the future destruction of the temple was just inconceivable. Not only was it inconceivable just because of his grandeur. I mean, when people approach the temple from afar, you know, Jerusalem is on a mountain. And it was so magnificent and grand with these beautiful uh, white stones, massive stones that they used to construct this temple, not to mention the gold that was plated Uh, in the holy place, that when the sun shone, it looked like it was a snow-capped mountain. I mean, it was just absolutely mind-blowing how enormous 
and it seemed that it would last forever. And that's why it was constructed. So for him to mention that this temple, that it would be destroyed, that not one stone would be left upon another, it absolutely shook the disciples to the core because it had cataclysmic overtones. Ultimately, it meant the end of the world in a, in a very real sense. The other thing to remember is that the temple is considered to be a microcosm of the universe. I mean, literally, the term microcosm from the Greek microcosmos means little universe, little cosmos. It was a tiny reflection, an image of the universe, which was a macro temple. And so when you went to the temple, it was adorned in such a way as to reflect the universe, the heavens and the earth. So for Jesus to say that this temple would be destroyed is tantamount to saying that the world will come to an end. So I just want to impress that upon people as we approach this gospel. And the response of the disciples is one of, of sheer panic. They, they're terrified. And they want to know what sign can they look for so that they're prepared. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is speaking prophetically here about two events, one that is proximate and one that is far off into the future. And this is the way the prophecy works, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. He's obviously speaking of the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD. But he's also pointing forward to the end of time, to the consummation or the end of the world. And this for us is sobering because we don't often think of the end of the world, but mm -hmm. it will come. And the church teaches, <clears throat> the church teaches that we are effectively since the ascension of our Lord, we have been in the end times. I know that that's not a, a common way of thinking, but we have been awaiting Jesus' return, his imminent return for 2,000 years. No one knows the day nor the hour. And so as we approach the end of our liturgical year, the church, it exhorts us to begin thinking about the last things, the consummation of the world in anticipation of what? The feast of Christ the King. Christ will come as king, as judge, to judge the living and the dead, and to consummate God's plan of mm. salvation. So this is a very powerful reading, but ultimately Jesus is not seeking to simply scare or scandalize the disciples, but he wants to clue them into the fact that God has a plan, a glorious plan, and that we, the righteous, who are seeking to do God's will, we must persevere in the midst of persecutions until the very end. And he begins to list a number of, of the signs that will accompany the end, the persecutions. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I see a lot of that. In fact, in every age and generation, every generation has considered itself a potential candidate for the last generation, including our own, as we see wars and rumors of wars, Christians being persecuted and martyred. And so these are harbingers of the ultimate consummation of the world at the end of time. And we must be prepared and we must endure, as Jesus exhorts us to, in today's gospel, I mean, in Sunday's gospel, we must endure to the very end in order that we might save our souls. Mm, yeah. I was thinking about Haydock's commentary on today's gospel, how our Lord removed his physical immediate presence from them, hiding under the veil of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and they would wish and long and beg for that opportunity to be with him, to be among him, to consult him because of the persecutions that they must endure. 
To be a disciple means to endure persecution. God bless you, Hector Molina. Go to HectorMolina.com for more insider information on the gospel. We'll see you next week, Hector. Thank you, brother. Coming up after the break, it's time to play the game show. 877-757-9424. Call right now. Let's play the game. The Bible says to call no man father. So why do we call our priests father? In Matthew 23, verse 9, it says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Notice that this verse makes no distinction between spiritual fathers, which is what priests are, and biological fathers. This passage says that no man is to be called father. Therefore, you cannot distinguish between calling a priest father and calling the man who is married to your mother father. But is that actually what this passage is saying? Or is Jesus warning us against trying to usurp the fatherhood of God, which is what the Pharisees and scribes were doing? They wanted all attention focused on them. They were leaving God, the Father, out of the equation. And even if you just interpret this passage from Matthew 23 as an absolute ban against calling anyone your spiritual father, then there are some problems for you in the rest of Scripture. For example, Jesus in the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16 has the rich man referring to Abraham as father several times. Paul in Romans 4 refers to Abraham as the father of the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Spiritual fatherhood, not biological fatherhood. In Acts 7 and then in Acts 22, first Stephen and then Paul referred to the Jewish priests and elders as brothers and fathers. Spiritual fatherhood. So if you interpret Matthew 23 as saying we cannot call anyone our spiritual father, then you have to believe that Jesus, Paul, and Stephen all got it wrong. It is okay to call priests our spiritual fathers today. We are simply imitating the example given us by Jesus, Paul, and Stephen, all of whom who used the term in a spiritual sense. As long as we remember that our true father is God the Father and that all aspects of our fatherhood, biological and spiritual, are derived from him. A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Welcome to another round of fear and trembling. The Catholic trivia game show that helps you work out your salvation by the seat of your pants. It's a 50-50 chance and prizes are involved. Avoid the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Call now to take your shot. 877-757-9424. And now your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time and Fear and Trembling. A Catholic trivia game show that has secrets and agendas that you are not supposed to tell anybody. All right? So keep it between us. But if you would like to play the game, now is a perfect chance for you because the phone lines are wide open. You could play our game right now by making a phone call at 877-757-9424. Phone lines are open at 877-757-9424. had several calls yesterday. If you didn't get in, you can try back today at 877-757-9424. 9424 is the phone number. Adrian Fonseca standing by to take your call at 877-757-9424. But there are a few things we do on the down low, the QT. We just uh, just don't want it to get out too far. So don't tell anybody. But nonetheless, we like to teach the faith. So we look for teachable moments in the questions where you might learn something you didn't know before. Praise be to God. Always, always good to learn, right? Wouldn't you agree? And then, of course, we like to have a laugh. We like to have a chuckle 
And our callers are amazing. But they have to call 877-757-9424. is that phone number. One more time. 877-757-9424. Phone lines are open. And the third thing we do is we give out prizes, which means... You're going to get something out of this every single time. You're either going to learn something, you're going to laugh, or you're going to win, or maybe all three. So it's a winner for everybody involved. But if you're new here, I shall reveal the kicker. Here's the secret sauce. We don't ask the caller the questions, so they don't need to know. They may not know a single correct answer and could still win our game because instead of asking them, I will ask Rudy, I will ask Adrian, One of them will have a correct answer, and the other will have an incorrect answer. The caller will then have 15 seconds on the clock to make a decision. Whomst do they trust more, Rudy or Adrian? And every correct answer at that point goes into the coffee cup of divine providence to win this week's prize. Rudy, what could they win? Praise be to God. Our sponsor this week is Mendoza Leathercraft. Easy for you uh, to say. (laughs) Mendoza Leathercraft. (laughs) They're a small business from Tomball, Texas, that provides high-quality, unique, and custom leather products that will serve you a lifetime. Victor is a mm-hmm. fellow Catholic, and mm-hmm. he's generally generously sponsored our game show. I'm stumbling through my words today. This week with a beautiful leather rosary pouch. It's made of horween leather. It mm-hmm. also uh, has a, a wonderful keychain with a brass fitting. It's made out of uh, Horween Chrome Excel leather. And also, he asked me to mention, if you're in the Irving, Texas area, he's going to be at the St. Nicholas Farmer's Market over at Modern Day Parish. Make sure to check out his booth. But you can also check out his website, MendozaLeatherCraft.Square.Site, and check out all the other things he has up there. I'm sure you'll find something. Christmas is right around the corner. MendozaLeatherCraft.Square.Site. He's also on Instagram, Twitter, mm. Facebook, and TikTok. Mm. Thank you very much, Mendoza Leathercraft. Now, it's just me. Maybe, Adrian, I, you were answering the phone. Maybe you didn't hear it, but I heard a twinge of a Texas accent in Rudy's language there. Really? No. He was like, from Tomball. Tom Did you hear that? I heard that. I heard uh, oh, Tomball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard. No, uh-uh. uh-uh. He's from, like, Tomball or something. <laughs> that's how. I, that's what I heard. M- Mendoza Leather from Men- Tomball. Mendoza Leather. That's what I heard. Friend. Mendoza starts with the uh, starts how, with the cowboy boots. Starts it's a with the real cowboy boots. Man's leather company. It ends with the accent. I'm just saying. Let's go to the phones. Praise be to God. Hey, good morning to you, Matt. Good morning. Praise Jesus, Matt. Thanks for being on the show today. Where are you from? Uh, from Virginia, driving into work to DC today. You you have to go to DC on purpose? Like that's something you intended to do today? <laughs> Like you are, I did not intend to do that. You are a brave soul, and you drive. I thought everybody took trains up there. Uh, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Praise be to God, Matt. Now, uh, Virginia, very nice part of the country. Where do you go to church? Uh, St. Lawrence Parish. St. Lawrence. Well, excellent. We're glad to have you on the show today. Matt, are you familiar with the rules? Do you know how all this works? Yes, I am. All right, well... You should know that there's a continuing trend that's somewhat troubling, I would argue. Uh, Mr. Rudy Carlos is still not wearing a tie today. In fact, he doesn't have a a collared shirt on. He's wearing a sweater for crying out loud, and it's 98 degrees here in Texas. You want to know the truth? Yeah. What kind of a... Who wears a sweater in Texas? Uh, Look, I just want to pretend, okay? I want Uh to pretend like it's fall, like we're Uh going into winter or something. I don't know. Confused here. There's no seasons here we, in Houston. Winter is coming. We don't get four seasons. Matt does, though. I bet it's pretty chilly up there today. But uh, All right, Matt. Praise be to God. Are you ready to play, sir? Yes, I am. 
Yes, sir. Let's do this. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a good day. I I have a feeling we're gonna we're gonna play well. We're gonna start with Rudy Carlos and his sweater uh, on this ch- chilly fall morning here in Houston, Texas. What is it? Seventy five oh, so degrees out already. Blue for our lady, by the way. Hey now. All right, Rudy. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you sure? I am ready. Ay ay ay. Are you? Ay, ay, ay. Are you really sure? I am ready. Okay. Let's do it. Can you tell me what is the term for a male saint who lived a life of sanctity but did not suffer martyrdom for his faith? (laughs) A male who didn't suffer martyrdom. He didn't try hard enough. So out here in Tomball, Texas, we call them yellow bellies. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's yellow, rough, man. Yellow belly. Is that that's your official answer? Ecclesiastical term, by the way. Yes, it is. Is it? Mm-hmm. Is that belly. what the origin of yellow belly comes from? Exactly. I didn't know. It's Italian, you know. Is that right? Interesting. Okay. Some say it's Latin, but it's actually Yellow Belly yeah. is your answer. Yellow belly. Yellow belly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh Adrian, uh maybe you are an expert on guys who don't quite achieve the goal here, but could you a- a- answer for me? What is the term for a male saint who lived a life of sanctity but did not suffer martyrdom for his faith? Well, you see, as someone who identifies as a PhD in success, actually, what? these men are successful because they ran the race and made it to heaven. Really? And they are known as confessors because they confess the faith. Mm, confessors, you say. Interesting. Okay. Well, Matt, in uh, D.C., you got options. Uh, Adrian says these guys who lived saintly lives but didn't die as martyrs are called confessors, whereas uh, Rudy is pretty confident they're called yellow bellies. 15 seconds on the clock. Who is right? Who is wrong? What say you, Matt? Going to have to go with Adrian. Just, you, y- sure? you have to, Matt. Please, please don't feel bad. <laughs> Way to go, Matt. Way to go. Don't uh, you know you're now mm, 10 times more attractive? Mm-hmm. You're 10 times smarter. I, I hear you get younger as well. <laughs> more fit. Yeah. It's, full head of hair. Just mm. the, the women are flocking over. You're going to have to be fighting them off Matt? like St. Dominic uh, later <sighs> on. Matt, don't feel bad. Sometimes you have to admit Adrian is correct. It's just, you <laughs> know, bad. we try to avoid it, but we do what we can anyway. But you're in the cup. Congratulations. Confessor is the correct answer. Let's see if we can't get you in for two. We're going to go to Adrian with this one. Adrian. Now, can you tell me, what does the liturgical symbol of salt stand for? Ah, yes. The liturgical symbol of salt. You know, they, they place it in the, on the tongue of the those who are getting baptized, uh-huh. especially so babies are happen or, or adult converts as well. Really? And it symbolizes being salty and you're like whoa, wait, what does that mean what does that mean it means like being bitter <laughs> against people and being like ugh really yeah so the technical term is being salty but it, it could in a, a dynamic equivalence would be ugh like the pharisee and the tax collector so your official answer is what again is being salty salty mm-hmm. i see okay mm-hmm. uh rudy maybe you could help what does the liturgical symbol of salt stand for it stands for wisdom. So when uh, you go to the traditional rite and they put the salt on the baby's mouth, yeah. or whoever is getting baptized, Got it. you see they go, they kind of like lick their lips like, oh, this is great. They're growing in wisdom. Yeah, I see. Because they like the taste. Yep. Got it. Exactly. Huh. All right, Matt. Uh, you got options here. Uh, Rudy says the liturgical symbol of salt stands for wisdom, but Adrian says it stands for salty. 
So 15 seconds on the clock. Who's right? Who's wrong? Matt in D.C., what say you, sir? Uh, Going to go with Rudy on this one. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, surprise. Salty. So, this is like a, sh a sea shanty or something. No, salty <laughs> like, you know, that person to be salty. That's that person to be salty. Is that like the, what the kids say these days? Yeah. That's that person to be salty? Yeah. Is that what they teach in university? Say, uh, for FRFR, no cap, that boy salty? <laughs> uh, I need an interpreter. I, I should anymore. phone a friend to figure out what he just said, because I have no idea. But uh, all right, it is correct. Wisdom is the right answer. Matt, you're in for two. You're playing well. This could be a perfect score. But I should warn you that these questions, this last question, this type of question is generally incredibly tricky. Like, it's, I would never want to have to answer these because I'd probably get them wrong every single time. But, uh, Matt, if you're courageous enough, we'll try it. We'll go to Rudy. Rudy, can you tell me, is the fear of the Lord a gift of the Holy Ghost? Absolutely not. Because oh, the Lord does not want us to be afraid. Okay, okay. Well, let's see what a uh, Adrian says. Adrian, is the fear of the Lord a gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So yes, fear is a gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm I seeing salt was the beginning of it. I'm just seeing the connection here. Because the last question. Man. All right, Matt, is the fear of the Lord a gift of the Holy Ghost? Was the question. Adrian says yes. Rudy says no. Fifteen seconds on the clock. Who's right? Who's wrong? Matt in DC. What say you? Amazing as it is, Adrian is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing as, it, amazing as it is. Do we even count that as the correct answer by because he used the words "amazing as it is"? I, I don't know. I I think that mm. uh, we should deduct, deduct a point for being salty. Salty, You're very salty, Matt. Praise well, then be to I'd God. Be wise, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Fear of the Lord is a gift of the Holy Ghost. You are in for three. Perfect score, Matt. You played well. Hey, uh, God bless you, and God love you in uh, D.C. traffic this morning. We're going to be praying for you and for your day. Thanks for playing our game, Matt. Thank you, guys. We're going to put you on hold, get your info. That's going to do it for the radio side of our show. Join us in the after show. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. God love you. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Welcome to the Holy Mass at Our Lady of Corpus Christi Chapel. Today we celebrate the memorial of Pope St. Leo the Great. The intention for today's Mass is for all of our online viewers and for those joining us through Guadalupe Radio. The Lord established for him a covenant of peace and made him the prince that he might have the dignity of the priesthood forever. The Lord established for him a covenant of peace 
and made him the prince, that he might have the dignity of the priesthood forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Lord be with you. Today we celebrate the memorial of Pope St. Leo the Great, who lived in the 400s. He grew up in an aristocratic family in central Italy. By his 30s, he was a deacon in Rome. After the death of Pope Sixtus III, he was chosen to succeed him. During the 21 years of his papacy, he resisted different heresies, including the Pelagian and Manichaean heresies. He also promoted the truth about the nature of Christ in writing his famous Tome of Leo to the Council of Chalcedon to affirm that Christ has a human nature and a divine nature united in his one person, the hypostatic union. He also helped to organize charitable works in Rome in a time when they were suffering from poverty, famine, and, uh, and also different refugees. And he helped to uh, keep Rome as safe as possible from different invasions, including famously going out to meet Attila the Hun and persuade him not to invade Rome. He died on this day in the year 461. He was the first pope to be named the Great, and he was also named a doctor, that is a teacher of the Universal Church. Brethren, let us acknowledge our sins, and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. You were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. May Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. Let us pray. O God, who never allow the gates of hell to prevail against your church, firmly founded on the apostolic rock, grant her, we pray, that through the intercession of Pope St. Leo, she may stand firm in your truth and know the protection of lasting peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. reading from the letter of St. Paul to Philemon. Beloved, I have experienced much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the holy ones have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, although I have full right in Christ to order you to do what is proper, I rather urge you out of love, being as I am, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I urge you on behalf of my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment, who was once useless to you, but is now useful both to both you and me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I should have liked to retain him for myself, so that he might serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that the good you, might, the good you do might not be forced but voluntary. Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. Beloved especially to me, 
but even more so to you as a man and in the Lord. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has done you any injustice or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will pay. May I not tell you that you owe me your very self. Yes, brother, may I profit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The word of the Lord. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. The Lord secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets captives free. Blessed Blessed is is he whose help is the God of Jacob. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the just. The Lord protects strangers. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. The fatherless and the widow he sustains, but the way of the wicked he thwarts. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, through all generations. Alleluia. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. I am the vine, you are the branches, says the Lord. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Alleluia, Alleluia. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said in reply, The coming of the kingdom of God cannot be observed, and no one will announce, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. There will be those who will say to you, Look, there he is, or look, here he is. Do not go off, do not run in pursuit, for just as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer greatly and be rejected by this generation. The Gospel of the Lord. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. Or it can also be translated, the kingdom of God is within you. Remember that the you is plural. The kingdom of God coming first in the person of our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, as Pope St. Leo the Great so explained and defended. The kingdom of God coming within the heart of each person as we open our hearts to Christ and respond to him, thinking and choosing and acting in different ways. So it is that we hear today our one day from this one chapter letter by St. Paul, his letter to Philemon. Now we know that he wrote his pastoral epistles 
two to St. Timothy, one to St. Titus. These were co-workers of his. But this letter stands out as one of a kind because Philemon was not a co-worker of St. Paul's exactly. Philemon was a well-to-do man who lived in Colossae, which is near what we today call the west coast of Turkey. And apparently, through meeting St. Paul, perhaps in Ephesus, he had come to believe in Christ, to be baptized. And then back in Colossae, we find that the church was then meeting in his home. So Philemon was a very faithful man. See, Paul is writing to him because he is sending back to him his runaway slave, Onesimus. It seems perhaps, as we read what St. Paul said, that perhaps Onesimus, Onesimus had run away from Philemon and perhaps had even stolen money at the time. As he said, Onesimus had then in some way made his way to Rome and there encountered Paul imprisoned and there had come to believe in Christ as well and even helped out Paul. Now Paul is sending him back to Philemon with this letter. We know we hear at times about how St. Paul will say that in Christ there is no male or female, no slave or free, no Greek or Gentile or Greek or Jew. In this he is speaking about these great social divisions in the ancient world. There was slavery throughout the Roman Empire. It was a great definite division between those who were slave and those who were free. I think Paul is not pushing back against the institution of slavery. It would have been useless and, in fact, brought great opposition from the government. But he's acting, asking Philemon to act completely differently. Philemon probably had the right to kill Onesimus for being a runaway slave who had stolen money from him. But St. Paul's asking him something different, something radical. He says, have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. Beloved, especially to me, but even more so to you, as a man and in the Lord. He knew that Philemon had probably the legal right to treat Onesimus in this way, even to take his life. But he asked him not to. He asked him instead to rise above this and treat him entirely differently. Their relationship to be transformed in Christ to see him as truly human, indeed, as his brother in Christ. You know what St. Paul did here, the church has then done throughout the centuries, pushing back against slavery, indeed bringing it to a legal end, first in Europe in the Middle Ages, and then again in the, throughout the world in the 1800s, lifting up the dignity of every human being. The saint that we celebrate today, Pope St. Leo the Great, said in one of his sermons, let no human being be thought worthless to a human being, nor should that nature with the which the creator of things made his own be despised in anyone. So as the church has always and continues to uphold the dignity of every single human person without exception. St. Paul asked Philemon to do something radical. And perhaps we can imagine that he and Pope St. Leo turn to you and me and ask us to do something radical. Now, in our case, it's not having to do with treating a slave well. But perhaps you might think in your own life, is there someone or is there some group of people that you encounter from time to time who are perhaps of a different socioeconomic class, perhaps they're lower than you, perhaps they're higher than you, perhaps they're of a different race, different ethnicity, different language group, perhaps they live in a different part of town, Perhaps legally you have the right to treat them a certain way. Perhaps the culture expects you to treat them a certain way. But 
St. Paul asks you to do differently, to make a radical change, to live according to the truth of what you have come to know in Christ. Imagine him saying to you, refresh my heart in Christ. Live differently. Don't do what the culture expects. Treat every person with true human dignity. Refresh my heart in Christ. As Christ said, the kingdom of God is among you. Brothers and sisters, let us present our petitions to God on behalf of all people. That God may bless Pope Francis and our Bishop Michael. Let us pray to the Lord. That he may guide and sustain the work of those who shape the course of nations. Let us pray to the Lord. That he may give those who suffer temptations the strength to resist them. Let us pray to the Lord that he may deliver us from a sudden death. Let us pray to the Lord. The God who has given the Church an excellent model of a good pastor in St. Leo the Great may grant that Pope Francis may imitate him in living out a total dedication to the good of the faithful. Let us pray to the Lord. That the day which we are now beginning may bring us joy and peace. Let us pray to the Lord. O Lord, we ask that you hear our prayer and come to the aid of all those for whom we have prayed, through Christ our Lord. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. With your goodness, we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Through the offerings made here, we pray, O Lord, graciously shed light on your church, so that your flock may everywhere prosper, 
and that under your governance the shepherds may become pleasing to your name. Through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For as on the festival of St. Leo the Great, you bid your church rejoice, so to you strengthen her by the example of his holy life, teach her by his words of preaching, and keep her safe in answer to his prayers. And so with the company of angels and saints, we sing the hymn of your praise, as without end we acclaim. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Degus Abahod, Lenis Uncelia Terra, Gloria Tua, Osana in Excelsis, Benedictus, Qui venit in nomine Domini, Osahana in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat of it for this is my body which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis our Pope and Michael our Bishop and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters 
who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection, and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the Blessed Apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life, and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Savior's command, informed by divine teaching, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Let us offer each other the sign of peace. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, Qui tollis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccata mundi, dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. An act of spiritual communion. My Jesus, 
I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Peter said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Glory to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Peter said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Let us pray. Be pleased, O God, O Lord, we pray, to govern the church you have nourished by this holy meal, so that firmly directed she may enjoy ever greater freedom and persevere in integrity of religion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vita Dulcedo, et spes nostra salve. Declamamos, exules filii eve, ad te suspiramos, gementes et flentes, in hac lacrimarum vale. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, ilos tuos, misericordes oculos, ad nos converte. Et jegesum, benedictum fructum ventris tui.
The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg Thee through the intercession and help of the Archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. If you want the truth, well, you're tuned to the right station.